You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda. And I'm your co-host, Katie Puck. And Katie, where are you recording from this time? I am in Hawaii. Very jealous. I'm still in Washington, although it is a very nice day here. And we've just had the Indo-Pacific Strategy also released by the administration, which makes this a particularly notable Friday, I guess. We'll get to that in a minute. But uh, today's episode is pretty special because uh, I'm, I'm really delighted uh, to introduce somebody who's very familiar to hopefully all of our listeners on the podcast, uh, which is Prashant Parmeswaran. Welcome back, Prashant. Good to be back. And uh, the reason we have Prashant back, of course, because, you know, we, we love Prashant and we learn from his analysis all the time. Uh, but Prashant has written a book, uh, which is very exciting. The book is called Elusive Balances, Shaping U.S.-Southeast Asia Strategy. Prashant, so congratulations on this terrific accomplishment. I think this book is going to be a pretty important contribution to uh, understanding of U.S. foreign policy on a very critical part of the region. So uh, congrats. Thanks so much. And so, you know, let's kick off this discussion by, um, you know, your book has an argument. And uh, I think it's an interesting argument. So why don't you lay it out for our listeners uh, instead of me butchering it on your behalf? Because uh, I actually <laughs> haven't read the book yet, but but uh, I have I have at least read your writing that I know has gone into this book for a long time. Uh, but but tell us a bit about the argument. Yeah. So I, essentially, the, the the basis of the argument is I, I started uh, sort of thinking about this question actually over a decade ago when I was speaking to U.S. policymakers and then also Southeast Asian policymakers. And whenever I spoke about U.S. commitment to Southeast Asia, there essentially was one recurring theme, which was when you look at U.S. commitment to, towards Southeast Asia over the decade, there's this pattern of ebbs, flows, and imbalances over time. And so every time there's a success in a particular administration, uh, Southeast Asian countries are asking, well, how long is this going to last? Is this an administration-specific thing, or is it, is it going to endure? And then I think for U.S. policymakers, the question was, I mean, they were very much aware of this challenge, but they also were speaking about some of the difficulties and challenges and constraints that they faced at the domestic level, speaking to a domestic audience, but then also a regional audience in the Indo-Pacific, and then a global audience, because the US is, is, is a global power. So then the question to my mind was, well, is this really happening, right? Uh, and then if it's happening, how do we actually address it and how do we mitigate it? And so the book essentially argues that this is not a case of either Southeast Asians just being perennially tough graders or U.S. policymakers just not getting it in spite of the fact that they talk to Southeast Asians all the time and they're telling them the same messages. R rather, it's the product of really specific structural issues in U.S. policy. And that has to do with the intersection of power, uh, threat perceptions, and resource mobilization in a U.S. Uh, domestic context. And that helps explain a lot of the episodes that we've, ta we've talked about and we've all like sort of written about or, or we've had submissions come into the diplomat over the years about whether we're talking about the post 9-11 environment and terrorism and how that came to consume U.S. policy or the pivot and the rebalance, right? We started off with a tremendous amount of promise, but towards the end of the Obama administration, I think there were questions, including among former Obama administration officials about whether that really lived up to the hype in terms of the, the response to China, for example, um, whether the economic resources were there to justify some of the programmatic uh, uh, sort of functions that were announced at the beginning of the administration. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how much how much of the commitment challenge is more recent? Uh, sort of, you know, how much of that do you date back to sort of the start of the pivot era? And how much of that really goes back to the Cold War? Because, I mean, the U.S. has been engaged in Southeast Asia for decades. Uh, and so I'm wondering... 
Um, you know, do you sort of date this to a post-Cold War development? Did it sort of have an inflection point? Uh, what's the what's the view there? Yeah, it's it, that's an excellent question because the book actually takes off um, right after the U.S. Uh, withdrawal from Vietnam and how U.S. policymakers were trying to at once uh, basically retrench from Southeast Asia relative to the the sort of heightened U.S. commitment period during the Vietnam War, but also convincing Southeast Asian elites that they actually weren't doing that. And from the archival evidence that uh, we have and, and that I analyze in the book, um, it really is pretty clear in private conversations, U.S. officials are saying, you know, including, you know, Richard Nixon is saying, well, we know that uh, we can't actually fulfill these commitments, but the Chinese need to believe that we're fulfilling these commitments. The Soviets need to believe them. So we need to make it appear like we're doing that, right? And so I think those aspects are pretty continuous uh, from the sort of uh, Cold War period. I think the things that are more recent uh, have to do with uh, some of the new innovative mechanisms that U.S. policymakers have advanced. So like the idea of advancing engagement with ASEAN as a regional institution, that's something which, you know, with the Obama administration joining uh, the, the East Asia Summit and committing to a U.S. presidential engagement, you know, we're all familiar with this. Every year when the U.S. president goes or doesn't go, it's like this huge controversy, right? And it's, it's the headlines all over. Um, you know, this is actually something that uh, Southeast Asians talked about, right? Within ASEAN, when they were trying to admit the United States and Russia, the question was raised, which is, are, are US presidents going to be coming every year? Or should we even bother, right? Whereas the Russians, you can question a lot of other aspects of their commitment, but you know, Vladimir Putin is a pretty stable feature uh, in terms of their domestic politics, right? So that, com that component, I think, is, is new. And I think the other component that's new is the the China component, right? Um, one of the the later episodes in the book, which is the sort of post-global financial crisis period, it's this combination of China rising within the context of, of Asia, which is actually not new given China's historic role, but the United States having to accommodate the fact that, um, you know, the reality is that if you look at polls in Southeast Asia, uh, everybody already sees China as being not only the, the major economic player, but also the major political and security player. But the question is, what United States are Southeast Asians engaging with? Is it the United States that is trying to keep its position of primacy in the region and perhaps prevent China from rising the, the way it should? Or is it the United States that is promoting a more multipolar order um, rather than a, a bipolar or unipolar one? And I think that latter vision is what s some Southeast Asians hope they're dealing with, but not necessarily the one that they've gotten, uh, depending on the administration that they've engaged with. Mm -hmm. So I, I have a question for Chance. How do you look at um, commitment? So what, what kind of metrics would you say count as commitment? Is it money? Is it just presence, which you talked about? And I, I imagine the answer is it's a bunch of those things. But I'm curious about what, what is commitment and, and how do you demonstrate commitment? And obviously, the reverse is true. How do you what, what does it mean when something isn't committed? Yeah, I think Katie, you're you're putting your your finger on the on the pulse of something that was like one of the things that I had to think about most uh, in writing the book. So, the the question really is, you know, often commitment is seen largely through a security prism, or or perhaps mm -hmm. a little bit on the diplomatic prism. The 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 challenge with committing, say, with sort of differentiating between U.S. commitment and say Chinese commitment, is that a lot of uh, China uh, related commitments have to do with the government, whereas in the United States, a lot of that is non-government 
governmental commitments. So on the economic mm -hmm. side, it's the private sector actually that's involved. Non-governmental organizations, think tanks play a large role um, in that. So the, the book takes a very comprehensive approach to commitment. So it, it includes security commitment, uh, economic commitment, um, you know, democracy and human rights is, is a huge one and, and a very uh, controversial one actually in parts of US Southeast Asia commitment. But I think where it draws a little bit of a line is that if, you know, if, if it's only a company specific commitment, right? Uh, or it's something which a, a group or a series of people are doing between the United States and Southeast Asia, that doesn't constitute US government commitment. I think we have to draw a line somewhere just to be able to compare this uh, between, say, U.S. commitment versus China commitment versus Japan versus Australia and some of the other countries. And I think when you take that broad-based approach to commitment, it also helps shed light on, you know, there's some periods where, and actually the post-Vietnam period is an excellent example, where the United States government commitment to Southeast Asia actually had a bit of an ebb, but the private sector continued to engage Southeast Asia and actually increased its commitment to Southeast Asia in the, in the 1980s. And I think that's one of the big sort of takeaways from the book is uh, thinking about this broad-based notion of commitment helps us think about the role of various stakeholders, not just the US government, but you know the private sector, think tanks, um, you know, uh, private institutions, individuals, human rights groups. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, sort of jumping off of that, I mean, within Southeast Asia, uh, you know, there's a, a, there's a number of different types of demand signals from the varied countries, from the varied domestic constituencies within, within those countries for what the U.S. role ideally should be in the region. Uh, and so, you know, maybe this is maybe this is an unfair question because it might be hard to generalize over time. But do you see any broader trends there? I mean, uh, over over time, I mean, uh, you know, I'm particularly thinking about the last 10 years or so when some of these debates from the early Obama period of the pivot uh, to the Trump period of sort of um, great power competition with China, introduction of the Indo-Pacific concept and so forth. Um, what did you sort of take away in your research from, from you know, what, what Southeast Asia wants from the United States? Yeah, I, I think that's, that's another thing that uh, becomes evident when you talk about the last 10 or 20 years of U.S. policy. I think under the Obama administration, there was a sense that, um, you know, as one uh, Southeast Asian policymaker uh, expressed to me very, very bluntly, you know, have we seen peak U.S. ASEAN commitment, uh, essentially? Mm -hmm. Like, is this as good as it gets, right? Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, per perhaps some of us may have answered that question too prematurely because then you had the, the Trump period where you saw a fall off and drop off in, in U.S. commitment. But the question there essentially was, you know, you had uh, National uh, Security Council officials and officials close to Obama spending tremendous amounts of time engaging Laos, right, in, in Southeast Asia, which you really never had seen in U.S. policy in the context of the post-Vietnam War period. Uh, folks like Ben Rhodes, uh, for example. Um, and that was a huge change from when we saw in the, in the Trump administration where great power competition essentially meant that if you're with us on this particular issue, we're gonna engage with you more and maybe you're, you're not with us on this particular issue and we'll do the basic engagements and we'll continue to talk to you, but you're not really going to be a priority country uh, for us. So this issue of engaging Southeast Asia for its own sake, holistically and comprehensively versus engaging Southeast Asia because it is speaking to a particular challenge in U.S. policy, whether it's terrorism under the Bush administration or China under the Trump administration. And now, you know, under the Biden administration, I think we're still seeing some component of that, a little bit of a mix there. That's a particular issue. And I think, you know, it, it's just a 
broaden it out a bit, I, you know, I don't think that this is something that's unique to Southeast Asia, right? So, you know, Katie does a lot of work on Central Asia, for example, in regions where you see, you know, U.S. commitment is not sort of natural or the region is not uh, sort of accepted universally as being a commitment for its own sake, you do see this relative to say Northeast Asia or places like Australia, for example. Mm -hmm. So Southeast Asia is a particular victim of this, but I don't want to suggest that it is the only victim of this within US policy. Mm -hmm. That kind of leads me to to a question that I had when sort of reviewing what your book was about. Um, what's the role of domestic US politics in kind of directing the the commitment to Southeast Asia in, in particular, but uh, as you said, I think this can be applied to other regions. Um, you know where there you, you put it very well. Uh, you know there's not a natural or an obvious um, sell to the domestic public. Why should Southeast Asia matter? I imagine you get asked that question a lot. I get asked it about Central Asia all the time. So you know what's the role of, of domestic politics in in that kind of um, angle in directing foreign policy in this area? Yeah, so that that's like a huge um, focus of the book. So, Katie, I'm glad you you flagged that. So, I think there, there's a lot of sense when I when I talk to uh, Southeast Asia policymakers, um, they sort of mention that you know we understand the sort of intricacies of U.S. domestic politics, but often our publics don't. So, when when you sort of tell us that a particular bill in U.S. Congress is introduced, but it's not going to be passed, and it's on the South China Sea, that's not necessarily how it's portrayed in the media or portrayed in in Southeast Asian publics, and the same thing when you sort of talk about how, you know, it's very difficult for the Biden administration to sort of talk about an Indo-Pacific economic framework because of the tensions between USTR and the National Security Council and so on and so forth. That's good sort of inside Washington baseball. But in Southeast Asia, it's it's the same thing. It's U.S. commitment, right? Um, it's not seen as being different. So I think it's really important to get at some of those intricacies. And I think I would say a couple of things. One is, um, you know, when talking to former Bush administration officials, uh, I think I, I sort of gained, my, even myself, really, like a greater appreciation for just after 9-11, um, how significant that sort of um, the, the effect was on U.S. policy, you know, the sort of all hands on deck and the fact that there wasn't a sense that even the, the sort of war on terrorism could be won. Right, um, and the sense that the United States was under attack, so that motivated and shifted a lot of policy. Which, when Bush came into office, a lot of the uh, leading Asia officials already were saying that China is the major threat. That's what we're going to focus on. That's the major challenge. But then 9/11 comes along, and then we're back to square one. And I think under the Biden administration, we're now in a period where people are asking the same question. Right, every time another threat comes along in another part of the world, you know, North Korea launches a missile or Russia, Ukraine, um, the question is. How serious is this? And Southeast Asia is particularly attentive to that. So one is the threat dynamic, which we saw particularly under the Bush administration. And then the other one is the resourcing uh, component. Um, and I think after the fact that the Obama administration was sort of embarking on this pivot or rebalance at the same time that it was the post-global financial crisis period, um, almost yeah, I don't want to say it was inevitable, but it was clear that there would be a lot of resourcing constraints, irrespective of what the United States was doing or how 
goodwilled U.S. U.S. policymakers were being. And I think we're seeing that under the Biden administration. So we're seeing a lot of rhetorical commitments to Southeast Asia, which is really good. The Biden administration has engaged with Southeast Asia, restored uh, some of the partnerships that were um, a little bit by the wayside under the Trump administration. But on resourcing, that is still probably the biggest uh, challenge uh, for, for the administration, and particularly on the on the economic side. And that is something which, you, again, you know, you can sort of say, well, we need approval from Congress. You know, we need to appropriate these funds. You know, but you know, Southeast Asians, uh, a, you know, the, the the publics may not be as attentive to these mm-hmm. Washington sort of inside baseball dynamics. But then also, you know, Southeast Asians can count just like anybody else, right? So if you take a few funding streams and you say we we have a new initiative, but it's actually existing stuff that's happened 10 years ago, appropriated by USAID, that's not going to cut it, right? Particularly when China is, is saying, this is what we're doing in terms of new funding. Maybe that's not going to be realized. Maybe that's corrupt funding, but it's it's real. And and the Southeast Asians certainly can, can feel that on the ground as well. Well, so, you know, I, I want to get to the Biden administration and, and your thoughts on the Indo-Pacific strategy, which I think Katie and I will come back to talk about in more detail on a future episode. But before we get there, Prashant, you know, I think something that's been interesting, at least to me, that I've, I don't really have a fully thought out view on this, and I'm curious if you do, which is that, you know, you have sort of like we talk a lot about the U.S. and China and Southeast Asia, but it occurs to me that, you know, you mentioned Russia, India, Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, all of these other countries, increasingly Australia. Um, engage with Southeast Asia um, for their own reasons, right? I mean, you know, France selling Indonesia a batch of Rafale fighters just just this last week being a good example of um, of sort of that kind of cooperation. So what effect do you think that's having in the region on how these countries view the U.S.? Because it strikes me that maybe compared to 20 years ago, uh, you know, Southeast Asia has more options than ever. There's so much interest around the region in engaging with Southeast Asia for, uh, you know, the economic benefits, the huge markets. Um, there's just a lot drawing a, a variety of countries uh, to this region. I, I think you put your finger on a really important point, which is, I think, like, you know, I, I was speaking to one former Southeast Asian official who basically told me, you know, in, in no uncertain terms, um, when the United States withdrew from TPP, you know, this is a quote unquote double hit for the United States. And what he meant by that was that it's not only that the United States has helped set the table and then withdrawn, but also other countries are stepping up their commitments when the United States is stepping up its commitments, right? And so when the United States steps back, it's a region that is reshaped because other actors are also are also being motivated to, to do that. Not only China, but US allies and partners, right? Japan, yeah. Australia, Taiwan, right? So the big story of the last 10 or 15 years in Southeast Asia, perhaps in the Obama administration when we were living it, it seemed like it was a story of the US pivot to Southeast Asia and Asia more generally. But now, increasingly, when we look back, the story is that, you know, really everyone is pivoting towards Southeast Asia, right? Because of Southeast Asia's growing importance. And when the US pivots and then steps back, it's actually losing not only on its own terms, but the region is being reshaped by other actors when the United States leaves the table. And then when the United States comes back, like it's trying to do with, you know, the the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework with CPTPP, Either the region has moved on or U.S. domestic realities have adjusted uh, so much that it's impossible for the United States to enter with the same starting position. Right. Yeah, the United States can't come in with a 2011 strategy uh, economically in Asia and it's 2021. Yep. Yeah, 2022 now, actually, believe it or oh, not. Oh, God. Is that what year it is? <laughs> uh, anyways, yeah, no, time uh, time really does fly. Um, so let's, let's uh, round this out then by 
you know, fast forwarding now to February 2022, it's uh, Friday, February 11th, and the Biden administration, uh, just actually an hour before we began this recording, uh, released its Indo-Pacific strategy report. And I only mention that so listeners don't hold us accountable if our views are <laughs> particularly unnuanced, because I certainly need to read it a bit more closely after having skimmed it real quickly. But Prashant, let me let me put you in the hot seat here. Um, what did you see on Southeast Asia? And, and more broadly, I mean, you know, uh, what's your sense of uh, how the Biden administration is thinking about Southeast Asia? Yeah, I mean, we were talking about this a little bit bef before the taping. Um, you know, a lot of this is, uh, you know, Secretary Blinken was in the region uh, late last year, I think very smartly to sort of say that Southeast Asia was going to be uh, at the center of the strategy before it was released. Um, and I think so that the administration is, has all the optics right in terms of Southeast Asia and the, the references to ASEAN are, are great um, within the strategy, a lot of focus on, on the economy. But I think that there are some challenges there uh, because a lot of the low hanging fruit has been plucked already. And I would mention two in particular. One is the, uh, the issue of democracy uh, and human rights um, because it's not necessarily um, U.S. Uh, policy. It's more the Southeast Asia dynamics. I mean, democracy has really seen huge erosions in Southeast Asia since the Obama administration. So when the Biden administration is advocating for a democracy summit and is talking about democracy in the aggregate, it's going to find a lot less takers than when it talks about specific aspects of governance, like, say, anti-corruption, where actually there's a lot of focus in Southeast Asia or, say, illegal logging or deforestation, where, you know, the, the NGO community and environmental groups are doing a lot. So that's kind of one question which, which really is begging. Um, and then I think the other question is this issue of the Indo-Pacific economic framework. I think we've kind of talked about this briefly already, but from a Southeast Asian perspective, um, you know, all of these Southeast Asian countries are domestically consumed themselves with COVID-19, with economic difficulties, just like the United States is. Um, but I'm not sure if they are sold on the fact that the Biden administration has come up with a sustainable and credible strategy that says, we're going to rebuild at home, but we're also going to synergist synergistically engage with the Asia-Pacific, including uh, Southeast Asia. That means that the Biden administration is going to have to engage Southeast Asia on very specific sectors, right? Digital, climate change, and, and, and so on and so forth, because the region is, is being reshaped. It's an extremely young and dynamic region. That is the way, actually, to talk about a positive story in Southeast Asia and win the long game, rather than the short game, which is every time China makes a move, the United States makes an announcement and is trying to counter something that, that Beijing does. I think the United States is actually really well positioned for the long game. Um, it just needs to make sure that in the short term, it doesn't overreact to particular threats and that it's being attentive to not just speaking to the domestic audience, but also speaking to the regional audiences in Southeast Asia. And I think the good news there is that there are tremendously capable US diplomats on the ground uh, in these Southeast Asian capitals. They just need to be listened to. Um, and, and hopefully the Biden administration is going to be continuing to take on the feedback from the ground for Southeast Asian countries and then also their own people who are based in the region. Also, Prashant, you've you've now written you've now written this book that's really been a, the, you know, the accumulation of more than a decade's work by you uh, in this area. What's what's next for you uh, in terms of your interests and uh, you know what are you what are you looking at in terms of Southeast Asia these days? 
I mean, I, I think the, the one big thing I would say is um, now that this book is focused on U.S. commitment to Southeast Asia and, and U.S. strategy, um, I think the other component that's really interesting is what you talked about earlier, Ankit, which is, you know, it's not really a story about just, just the United States or, or China. It's really a comparative perspective about what each of these various powers in Southeast Asia that are engaging the region, you know, what are each of them bringing to the table? And then how are these Southeast Asian countries reacting? You know, I was really struck and I'll just quickly mention, um, there's this really good book that just came out, uh, edited by Tommy Ko and Daljit Singh um, on America, a Singapore perspective, which actually doesn't do a service, a full service to the book. It's a series of perspectives actually um, from Singapore about the United States. And I think it's really interesting to see across all of these Southeast Asian countries, a diversity of perspectives among a range of stakeholders about the United States. It's going to be really important, I think, for the United States and also other countries to engage a very young, vibrant uh, Southeast Asian community. And I suspect they're going to have very nuanced views as they interact more just with the United States, but also across the world and, and globally as well. So I guess the final thing is, how do our listeners get a hand, uh, you know, get their hands on your book? <laughs> so it's, it's, it's available on Amazon, but I should also plug the fact that I wrote, uh, as you mentioned earlier at the, at the outset, Ankit, a, a piece for The Diplomat uh, as well. So I'm going to continue to try to, as, as, as U.S.-Southeast Asia relations develop, uh, develop the argument from the book, because I do think it's a very dynamic uh, conversation, as we just saw with the release of the strategy right before we, we taped the, the episode. So I'm sure, you know, the conversation a year, two years, three years from now, if anything, the major sort of conclusion of the book is that we need to really pay attention to these structural factors because the narratives of each individual administration can look very different in four to eight to 12 years. And with the midterms uh, coming up later this year and then the the next US election, you know, Southeast Asians are asking the same questions we're, we're asking here, which is really how sustainable and if there's change to US policy, what is that going to look like? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Katie, any, any parting thoughts from you? Uh, just to say thank you for joining us. This is such a pleasure, and we'll, we'll have to have you back after we've had a chance to read the strategy and see what happens. Um, but I'm sure there will be much more to talk about in Southeast Asia as the years go on. Yeah, no, this was, uh, yeah, this was a fun uh, reunion prod, uh, podcast, Prashant. And yeah, I'll, I'll echo Katie on that. It'd be great to have you back on the show. Uh, so you heard you heard it from the author himself elusive balances shaping u.s southeast asia strategy uh by prashant parmesran so uh go out get your hands on the book uh so thanks a lot for uh, joining me prashant thank you both yeah and uh katie enjoy uh, the rest of your time in hawaii very jealous, you know so. i will <laughs> all right if you like what you heard on the podcast make sure you leave us a review you can do that on apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, spotify anywhere you get your shows tune in and if you haven't yet subscribed, make sure you do so you can keep up with future episodes. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back next week with more.